Well, good morning, FX Church. Glad you uh, chosen to tune in. We are continuing in our series in Esther. It's very appropriate for where we find ourselves right now. Uh, Book of Esther talks over and over again about the sovereignty of God in the midst of circumstances that just seem out of our control. And so that's where we find ourselves. Our, our series is called, If It Pleases the King. If It Pleases the King. Esther finds herself in a place where she's trying to obey, you know, the, the earthly leaders that she founds, finds herself surrounded by, that they've kind of created their own mess of circumstances that the Israelites, God's people had. And, and Esther finds herself in a place where she's become a queen, not by good circumstances. Um, through a beauty contest and rape, and she's an orphan, and just a mess of her life, she comes to a place where she's just a humble servant. And right now, we're trying to obey our earthly leaders. And, you know, thankfully, based on technology, we, we can. We're trying to obey the heart of the law, not the letter of the law. And the heart of the law is that we quarantine for a little while here for the benefit of others, for the benefit of, of people and, and the disease and the microbes, um, COVID-19 that's spreading. So we as a staff are, are not getting together to record this morning like we have. We're taking that break, um, and I'm just recording here uh, in my garage. Um, and so I, we're not judging what other churches or individuals choose to do. We're just kind of letting you know our perspective. Um, and if this quarantine extends longer, then, then we'll reevaluate how we as a church need to, to move forward and obey our King, King Jesus, but also our, our earthly authorities. And so... Remember, that's where we find ourselves in the, in the story. Um, and, uh, you know, this morning I want to talk about sorrow turning into rejoicing. You see, uh, sorrow into rejoicing is a choice. To take the brokenness of our past and the mess we find ourselves in and to find a way to rejoice in the midst of that and to trust God in the midst of that is a choice that we have to make. And there's always something to be sorrowful about. And there's always something to rejoice in, in the world around us. Um, we just have to learn what that looks like, and we have to have the power of God and the Holy Spirit to help us to do that. Romans twelve fifteen says to rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own estimation. And so that's what we want to do. We want to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We want to try to find agreement on what we do right now, and we don't want to be proud about it. We, we want to be willing to serve those that are sick and hurting. And I'm grateful for the people who have the essential jobs. They have to submit and do their jobs and risk their lives. We should celebrate that and pray for them. And, but we need to be wise, not in our own estimation, but wise in, in, in what we're told uh, is, is what we need to do and, and weigh that uh, as we walk with God. We pick back up the story. Remember in Esther chapter 4, verse 13, Mordecai was fasting and praying because the Jews were going to be murdered. They were going to be killed. Haman, a wicked man, uh, got in good with King Ahasuerus and decided he wanted to kill the Jews because of Mordecai. Mordecai would not bow to Haman. Mordecai was willing to, to submit to the king and asked Esther to submit to the king. But when Haman kind of made himself almost a god and asked Mordecai to bow before him, Mordecai's like, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And so Haman, because of his descendants coming from Agag, which we'll look at in a minute, wanted to kill all the Jews. And so we find Mordecai in sackcloth and ashes crying out to God. And then a messenger has been sent by Esther to tell Mordecai to stop because he kind of looks ridiculous, crying out and dressed in sackcloth and ashes. And so Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you'll escape the fate of all the Jews because you're just in the king's palace or you're in the king's palace. 
If you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's house will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go ahead and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. Fast means not to eat or drink. After that, I will go to the king, even if it's against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had ordered him. It's great because Esther here, she was in a time of rejoicing. She's in a good spot. She's the queen. She's being taken care of. And yes, there's been terrible things that have happened in her past, but she's, she's not nearly as concerned as Mordecai is, but she willingly allows her good position to become a position of sorrow that she may go before the king. And if the king doesn't lower his scepter, she'll be killed because he has to let her come into the presence. And so she's willing to risk her life on behalf of others to take her circumstances and and allow herself to be sorrowful. And Mordecai is being sorrowful. He's he's calling the people to to cry out to God. Right now, there may not be a tragedy. They, They were doing pretty well. The date hadn't come yet for the Jews to be killed, which was what the law Haman made was going to be. Esther's obeying Mordecai at this point. She's, she's such a humble servant, and Mordecai is trying to do his best to obey the Lord and obey the covenants of the Old Testament and, and everything that's there. It's interesting as we watch this story play out. In 1 Peter 3, it says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed, but honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You see, that's great. Peter's saying the same thing here. He's saying, look, we're going to suffer. There's going to be sorrow but, but I want you to have a clear conscience. I, I want you to, to go before the Lord. I don't want you to be afraid of what the world's afraid of or be disturbed, but to truly honor Messiah, the Savior, as your master in your hearts. To go before him with our cares and our worries and to go before him with our rejoicing and to surrender that to him and say, if it pleases you as our king. And see, that's what we should be doing now. We should be in a position where we're ready to give a defense for why we're doing what we do in this time. And trust me, as we read this story, it's going to get a little complicated in how we navigate this. And you know what? It's not about us. It's about God. We pick it back up in Esther 8, 15. It says, Mordecai went from the king's presence clothed in royal and purple white with a great gold crown and a purple robe of fine linen. Isn't it interesting that he was in sackcloth and ashes? And now we know in the story what's happened is Haman has been exposed. He's been hanged. He's been... um, The justice has been carried out on him because the king could not get rid of the old edict. He couldn't say, well, we just won't have the Jews be killed on that certain day. What he did is he made a new edict that said the Jews could defend themselves and get ready to defend themselves against the law. And see, that's kind of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, we can't get rid of. God doesn't just abolish the Old Testament. What God does is is he gives us a new covenant in Jesus to, to forgive us to give us the grace to cover ourselves, to put on a covering, which is what we talked about last week. And it says, the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced because they recognized that Mordecai had now elevated to a position where someone can help us with this day that's coming. 
And the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and law reached, joy and rejoicing took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday, and many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because of fear of the Jews that had overcome them. They're rejoicing because they they get to defend themselves. They're not rejoicing because they don't have to fight. Listen, the fight's not going to go away. The day is coming when they're going to have to fight. But how awesome it is that there's a new edict that says the Jews can defend themselves. They can give a defense. They, they can talk about what it is and, and fight for what it is that, to, to stay alive. And so I love that, that God just doesn't deliver us from our problems. He asks us to, to go through them. You see, people are surrendering to God because of this too. The fear of God's people and seeing what God is doing sovereignly and, and amazingly in his people is causing all of a sudden for people to ask questions of like, wow, what is this? And isn't it interesting that it's not, wow, they got the king to change his mind. They didn't get the king to change his mind. He can't. He made an edict. But they did get the king to, to give them permission to fight in the midst of the law. And that's what God does for us in the new covenant. He doesn't abolish the Old Testament, but he does give us the power of the Holy Spirit that teaches us how to walk in his laws and decrees and ordinances. There are some that we don't have to do anymore. We don't make sacrifices anymore because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. He, he, he abolished that part of the law. He Not abolished it, but he completed, fulfilled that part of the law. And he became the sacrifice, so we don't need to make them now. We look to his sacrifice. So it's not that we disobey the sacrifices of the Old Testament. We look at those sacrifices and say, that's nothing compared to the sacrifice I get to make every day by asking, going before Jesus and thanking him for what he's done. In verse nine or chapter nine, verse one, it says, the king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month of the month of Adar. On the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of King Ahasuerus's provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them and terror of them fell on every nationality. Now remember, the Jews aren't on offense here. They're not going around killing people. They're on defense. They're just saying, look, if you attack us, we're going to be ready to defend ourselves. It's not wrong to be on offense if God would have asked them to be, but that's not what they're supposed to do. The law says that they could defend themselves, so that's what they're doing. And so that's what you find God's people doing. And all of a sudden, they're recognizing that, wow, they're being defended and they're being supplied by the king and by Esther and by Mordecai. And there's a fear that says, whoa, we better be careful if we battle. But there are still those that are prideful. There are still those that are going to fight. There are still those that don't care about what pleases the king or pleases Esther or those in authority. But they're about their own pleasure and what I want. And I want to, to kill these Jews. And so th- th- that's what this looks like. And, and they armed themselves and they had to fight. God wasn't just going to take care of this for them. Listen, we're in a fight right now. We're trying to figure out how to arm ourselves with the right tools and quarantining and doing things right now to fight for life itself. They weren't necessarily fighting for eternal life right here. They were just simply trying to survive in a moment of crisis. That's kind of where we're at. And can I just tell you that that, that God asks us to do this. In Ephesians 6.10, Paul writes, from prison to the church in Ephesus. So he's in prison. He's in a place of sorrow, and yet he finds a way to rejoice all in all of his letters about his Savior and his future. Here's what it says. Finally, be strengthened in the Lord and by his vast strength. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the worldly powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This is why you must take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having prepared for everything, to take your stand. To take your stand. You see, God tells us in Ephesians 5 before this, God's laying out the authority structures of how we as believers are to submit to one another out of a fear for him. Remember, we just read that people were submitting to God. They were submitting because out of a fear, a reverence for, for what God was doing in his people, it's no different for us. We're to put on the armor of God. But it's not an armor where we fight earthly battles. We're fighting spiritual battles. And we need to be careful because sometimes we can make the excuse that we're actually fighting a, an earthly battle when in re, or a, a spiritual battle when in reality we're just fighting an earthly one and putting spiritual stuff on top of it. We see this later. We're going to look at the story of Saul, and this is what he did later, is that he, he didn't fight spiritual battles. He was trying to just keep what he could have. And so listen, we've got to put on the right armor. We need to know what it's like. If you're a soldier, it means you're submitted to a king. That's what this would have meant written at this time. If you're a Roman soldier, you're submitted to Caesar. You have a chain of command. And isn't it amazing that God says, look, I'm asking you to put on the armor and recognize that you're going to war with other people around you. You're not just one soldier, a lone soldier. The way the Romans fought, they fought in legions, in groups. They were trained in groups on how. That's why they were so effective. And so when he writes this, he's like, look, there's an enemy that has tactics that he's trying to destroy you. And you're going to have to put on the armor to stand. And the armor we're talking about, the way we do that is through prayer, through the body of Christ, the word of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through, through recognizing and remembering our past and being broken over it, rejoicing over some of it, but also looking at the future and recognizing there's sorrow coming and there's rejoicing coming and living in that tension. You see, in Genesis chapter three, we got into this mess because of the craftiness of the devil. And we believed his lies. And we didn't ask, and Adam and Eve didn't ask if it pleases God. They didn't go to God and cry out to him and ask what they should do. They just simply did what they wanted to do. You see, this, this battle's much bigger than us, much bigger. And so we've had a micro bring us to our knees as a people. And God's asking us to stand firm in him in the midst of this crisis, which is what he asked his people in Esther to do. And to believe him that he can take our sorrow and turn it into rejoicing and believe that it's worth surrendering our rejoicing so that we can help people in the midst of their sorrow. Esther 9, 5 says this, the Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. And the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including seven Parshandatha, or including, including Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Ardatha, Parmashtha, Arasai, Aradiah, and Vaisatha. They killed these 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, However, they did not seize plunder. That's a key word right there. Don't, don't miss that. However, they did not seize plunder. On that day, the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. So the king gets a report. The king said to Queen Esther, in the fortress of Susa, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, including Haman's 10 sons. What have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Because whatever you ask will be given to you and whatever you seek will be 
will also be done. In other words, this king was a warrior. We know that Ahasuerus, Xerxes, was a warrior king. He, he, he loved to wage war and battle. And so he's excited to hear how his queen and his queen's people are winning. And then he reminds her, hey, whatever you ask will be given. Whatever you seek will be done. He's reminding her that you got, I got your back. I'm behind you. This is the same thing God does for us. That when we choose to take a stand, when we choose to, to be sorrowful and to prepare, or we choose to rejoice and in our rejoicing, prepare for the sorrow that may come. When we prepare ourselves, we have a God that says, hey, I'm with you. Like, and that's what happens in this circumstance. It goes on in Esther 9, 13, and Esther answered, if it pleases the king. So again, the king has said, whatever you want, I'll give to you. And Esther answered, and again, she comes humbly and says, well, if it pleases the king, not, well, this is what I want. May the Jews who are in Susa also have tomorrow to carry out today's law. May the bodies of Haman's 10 sons be hung on the gallows. The king gave the orders for this to be done. So the law was announced in Susa and they hung the bodies of Haman's 10 sons. The Jews in Susa assembled together on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not seize any plunder. The rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defended themselves and got rid of their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not seize any plunder. You see, the king in this moment recognizes and Esther recognizes that yes, we battled today, but we see that there's going to be another battle tomorrow. Because we killed Haman's sons, there's still going to be a fight. And if you don't give us permission to defend ourselves another day, I'm afraid that it could get worse in your kingdom. So the king says, oh yeah, that makes sense. And he gives them permission to fight another day. With every breath we have, we've been given permission by God to fight another day. And so he gives this permission and it says they killed 75,000. Listen, The Jews are not on offense. They're not going around trying to eliminate all their problems. They're still slaves. They're still servants of this wicked king. They know because of the prophet Jeremiah, they're going to be delivered at some point and they're waiting on God to do it. We can't get our own deliverance. We can't like now assemble and go attack Xerxes and and overthrow him. Their humility is amazing. And it says over and over again, they did not seize any plunder. The reason for this is because they don't want to show that they're proud. They're like, it's not ours. We just want to defend ourselves. We're not trying to take anything. We just want to live our lives. And the reason, too, that they didn't take plunder is because in 1 Samuel 15, we have the story of Saul. Remember, Haman was an Agagite, the king of Agag. He was a descendant. As a result of knowing that, you have Saul who, who was supposed to get rid of all the Ag- the king of Agag. He was supposed to get rid of all the spoils. He wasn't supposed to take any plunder from this group of people. And the Jews at this point are so humbled and so repentant and so grateful for what God has done that they aren't taking plunder because Saul should have never taken it in the first place and they're not going to. Now, granted, Esther and Mordecai were given plunder by the king, they were given Haman's land, but that was given to them, not taken. And we have to be careful. We live in a time where we're talking about hoarding and taking. Listen, don't look to seize and get right now. Look at, yes, take care. Get your defenses up. Be prepared to serve and to defend the glory of God and to serve other people and be prepared for what's coming. We're supposed to do that, but it's not because we believe that getting that, this world's going to turn out better that it's all going to work out, that we know it's not. We, we have a heavenly home. 
And so the key to that is unbelievable because the normal thing to do is when you got rid of a group of people, you took everything because we deserve it. We're owed it. It's ours now. We fought for it. You lost. And instead they're like, no. And this would make it really good for other people around them too because then all these other people would look and see them as different. Like, why aren't they just taking? And then it also leaves it for them. So if they're eliminating the warlike evil people of these other nations that are fighting against the Jews, the people that were being persecuted by their own people are now realizing that those evil people in their own people group, their own ethnos, their own ethnic group that they're a part of are no longer alive. That, that wow, those, those prideful evil people are gone. And now look, we've, we've got a hope. And, and the Jews are saying here, have, have what you need. See, this is what is so beautiful about this story. In 1 Samuel 15, this is critical. 1 Samuel 15, Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. In other words, they they got rid of all the the worthless stuff and said, oh, look, God, look at what all we gave. They gave the leftovers, but they weren't going to give their best. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. Listen, I don't know where you're at right now, but so often anger and sorrow go together. They're, 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 they can be, you can get a root of bitterness. Those two things can be so close. You've got to be careful. You see, when we get angry, we should go to God with that anger. When we have big emotions, great emotions, even great rejoicing emotions, if we knew how to rejoice well, we would go to God with our rejoicing and give him credit. And Saul here goes to God in the midst and he prays all night. Verse 13, when Samuel came to him, Saul said, may the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel replied, then what is the sound of the sheep and the cattle I hear? Saul answered, the troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we destroyed. Stop, exclaimed Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. So here you have this situation where Saul knows he's caught and instead of confessing, instead of having godly sorrow that leads to repentance and brings rejoicing at the restoration, he makes an excuse. He makes an excuse and says, well, you know, the soldiers did it and they, they wanted to keep it. And, and Saul was a people pleaser. He, he couldn't stand to, to stand up for what was right and true from God's word. He couldn't stand to, to, to live in that tension. He was always just being tossed to and fro emotionally through sorrow and rejoicing. We see this through his life because he can't find that stable foundation in Christ. He's so desperately trying to be a king that he doesn't know how to please the king, the king of kings and Lord of Lords. And so here you have this mess. Samuel goes on. He says, uh, he challenges him. And then in verse 20, Saul says, but I did obey the Lord. Saul answered. I went on a mission. The Lord gave me. I brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction to sacrifice to the Lord, your God at Gilgal. That was never his plan. And even if it was his plan, even if he thought, well, I'll show off, I'll show what all God has done. That's not what God asked him to do. He asked him to be humble, to not take plunder, to not look to get, but just to, to do what I've asked. Then Samuel said, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. 
For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Man, this is a hard, hard thing that the sorrow that's here in this moment is huge. But it's so true. He's like, look, don't live in rebellion. And rebellion doesn't always look like crazy evil. Rebellion can be not rejoicing when God said to rejoice. Rebellion can be not being sorrowful because I don't want to feel sad when he's asked you to be sorrowful. It's a sin when we're not surrendered to God, when we're not under his authority. And it says it's like wickedness and idolatry because what happens is when we decide we're going to get what we want and we're going to plunder and get what we want, all of a sudden we open ourselves up to all kinds of bad, all kinds of wickedness. He goes on and it says this in 24, Saul answered Samuel, I've sinned. I've transgressed the Lord's command in your words because I was afraid of the people. I obeyed them. No, Saul didn't obey the people. Saul obeyed his own wicked heart and the people followed along with him. Had he took a stand, the people wouldn't have done what they did. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. Samuel replied to Saul, I will not return with you because you rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Verse 35, even to the day of his death, Samuel never again visited Saul. Samuel mourned for Saul and the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. I mean, this is just heart-wrenching. The Lord regretted. That doesn't mean that like he made a mistake. You see, when God gave people free will in the beginning, he said, I'm gonna give people the ability to choose and he knew what was gonna happen. That's why Jesus at the foundation of the world knew he was going to have to die for us. He was going to have to pay the price. He was going to have to leave the rejoicing of heaven to come to the sorrow of earth, to die a sorrowful death, to be resurrected in rejoicing, to live with God forever. See, that's the beauty of our gospel message and all for the pleasure of the Trinity, all for the pleasure of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. See, that's this story. And that's what Saul didn't get. Saul was constantly trying to figure out how to maneuver everything to keep what he had, to, 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 to get what he wanted. He wasn't looking to say, you know what? I've got everything. I don't need anything else. I, I'm content in him. And he didn't know how to go to God to ask for what he didn't have. He always asked Samuel to do it for him. He, he didn't know how to ask the people because he didn't want to act like he didn't have control. You see, that's the beauty of this story. That in Esther 9, 17, it says they fought on the 13th day. So they had another day of fighting in the month of Adar and rested on the 14th. And it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and 14th days of the month. They rested on the 15th day of the month and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. This explains why the rural Jews who live in villages observe the 14th day of the month of Adar as a time of rejoicing and feasting. It is a holiday when they send gifts to one another. Mordecai recorded these events and sent the letters to all the Jews and all the king of Ahasuerus's provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year, because during those days, the Jews got rid of their enemies. That was the month when the sorrow was turned into rejoicing. You see that? That was the month when sorrow was returned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting and rejoicing and of sending gifts to one another and the poor. You see, we're in a moment that's kind of sorrowful, but we as believers know there's coming a day of rejoicing. It may not be yet. Jesus may not come back yet, but we know there's a day of rejoicing coming and we throw ourselves at him who can save us. 
We, we, we ask people to remember Esther. We preach through the scriptures. We want people to know these stories so they know that how God turned sorrow into rejoicing and how he asked his people many times to take their rejoicing and to cry out in sorrow. That, that, that we go before him, not trying to get the emotions we want, but saying, God, we come before you and recognize we have everything from you. And that's what Mordecai is doing. He's making a law that says, this is how it's going to work from now on. We are going to be people that look to rejoice and weep when God wants us to rejoice and weep. And this is one of those moments where we're going to remember to rejoice. Listen, there may be things in your past that are sorrowful, that you need to remember a day of rejoicing. Let me just tell you that that's what God wants. This is what Jesus said to his disciples at the end of kind of his earthly ministry in John 16, 32. He said, look, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home. It's kind of where we're at right now. We're all in our homes, except for those of us who are essential and need to be out. And I'm grateful for them. And we need to pray for those essential people that are, that are doing the work to keep our society going. And then he says, and you will leave me alone. Will we leave God alone in this time or will we throw ourselves to him? He said, yet I am not alone because the father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, but be courageous. I've conquered the world. Look, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me, you might find peace. You're not going to find it in a cure to the coronavirus. You're not going to find peace in your bank account. You're not going to find lasting peace in any of those things, lasting emotions in the things of this world. It can only be found in me. And that's why Jesus says, you will have suffering. Listen, we're going to get over this probably. We're probably going to get through this tragedy, this epidemic. But you know what? There's still going to be death. None of us are getting out alive. Something's going to kill us. If it's not the COVID-19, something else is going to get us. There's death all the time. There's sorrow all the time. And there's rejoicing all the time. And that's why he says, be courageous. I've conquered the world. Put on the armor of God. Be courageous. Tell people the story of what's true about your world and about God. I've conquered it. In other words, Jesus said, I died for the sins of the world. I showed you that I paid the penalty for the sins that were owed. And now I've been resurrected. I show that I have power over death. So even in the midst of the death that we're living in, Jesus says, I want to show you that I've conquered. There's something to rejoice about. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, Therefore, since we have this ministry, this ministry to tell people about what Jesus has done and where we find our hope, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. No, we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. Verse 10, we always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. Our salvation is guaranteed because of what Jesus did, not because of what we do. That we just surrender to him and say, if it pleases the king, I give you my life. Verse 15 says, indeed, everything is for your benefits so that grace, that grace I just talked about, extends through more and more people may cause thanksgiving to increase to God's glory. We should still in the midst of this find a way to be a thankful people because we know what's coming. Heaven itself, a new earth, new bodies. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incorruptible eternal weight of glory. 
that, that we have an eternal weight of glory, that, that when we stand before God one day and see heaven, everything we've stored up is just going to seem so insignificant. It's like, this is nothing compared to what, what, what I know is coming. Verse 18, so we do not focus on what is seen. Listen, the news media, everybody's trying to get us to focus on everything that we see. It doesn't mean don't be wise, but, but if your focus is just on trying to fix everything here, you're going to be in trouble. But God says, but focus on what's unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Man, I'd encourage you to read this 2 Corinthians 4 passage, uh, this, this whole chapter uh, this week. It's just such an encouragement to say, you know what? This is just a temporary thing. And even though the Jews are going to celebrate and they're going to win, Purim didn't last forever. The Holocaust happened. The Jews couldn't defend themselves and they were killed. Like Christians have been slaughtered and murdered. Like we live in a world, Jesus said, of suffering. In Esther chapter 9, verse 23, it says, So the Jews agreed to continue the practice they had begun as Mordecai had written them to do. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the purr, that is the lot, they cast lots, to crush, that's like throwing dice, so to speak, to crush and destroy them. But when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own head and that he should be hanged with the sons on the gallow. For this reason, these days are called Purim from the word Pur. In other words, we recognize that God chose to have his favor, his lot fall on us in this moment and look at how evident it is. Look at what he's doing. And, and, and we believe that, that no matter what, the lot's always gonna fall in God's favor. No matter what happens, he's sovereign, he's king, he's in control. It says, because of all these instructions in this letter as well, as what they had witnessed and what that happened to them, the Jews bound themselves, their descendants and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year according to the written instructions and according to the time appointed. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city, so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life and their memory will not fade from their descendants." The Jews still to this day celebrate Purim. They still celebrate this as, as a remembrance of their sorrow that turned into rejoicing and to remember that in the midst of rejoicing and thinking that everything's okay, you may need to put on sackcloth and ashes and lament and fast and pray to ask God to deliver. Verse 29, chapter 9 of Esther, Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote the second letter with full authority to confirm the letter about Purim. He sent letters with messages of peace and faithfulness to all the Jews who were in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in order to confirm these days of Purim at their proper time, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established them, and just as they had committed themselves and their descendants to the practices of fasting and lamentation. So Esther commanded, or Esther's command confirmed these customs of Purim, which were then written in the record. See, remember that there is a time for fasting and lamentation, for crying out. A lament means to, to cry out to God about the truth of the, of the mess that we see. But that always leads to a place of rejoicing and fasting. And a place of rejoicing and fasting on this side of eternity will always eventually lead to a place of fasting and lamentation for behalf, on the behalf of others. It's both hand. See, in a relationship with Christ, we should have deep joy. We should be able to rejoice and feast on the word of God, the character of God, the Holy Spirit that fills us at all times. 
But remember that there are those who don't know and we fast and we ask God and we petition and we ask him if it pleases you, we choose to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And as believers, we have a lot to rejoice about. God warned us about plagues like this. He's told us how these things are gonna go down. He's given us a confidence and a relationship with Jesus that no matter what happens, we can continue to come back to him to repent and he will forgive in the new covenant. He will give his grace. Man, there's nothing greater to rejoice about than that. And we also have some sorrow because there are people who are perishing who don't know him. And they're gonna have to stand before him like Esther had to stand and give an account to a king they've never met. And he's gonna say, depart from me. You see, that's, that's what we're trying to tell people. You need to surrender to the king of kings and Lord of lords. Give him your life. It's worth it. It doesn't mean things are gonna turn out great in this life, but it does mean that you have a future eternal home that can't be taken away. And you know, you can not believe in that. You can choose to say, I don't believe all that stuff and eternity and everything else. That's a really hopeless existence because then why are we doing what we do here? Well, what's the point? Why not just get plunder? Why not just take what all I can get and enjoy the life that I want and whatever happens, happens. Survival of the fittest. That is a terrible world to live in. It's the world we created, God said, because of our sin. And it's a world that Jesus left heaven the rejoicing to enter into, to be broken for us so that we could then rejoice in our heavenly home with him. Man, we need to practice this idea of sorrow and rejoicing. Chapter 10, verse one, it says, King Ahasuerus imposed a tax throughout the land, even to the farthest shores. All of his powerful and magnificent accomplishments and the detailed count of Mordecai's great rank to which the king had honored him Have they not been written in the historical record of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus, famous among the Jews and highly popular with many of his relatives. He continued to seek good for his people and speak for the welfare of all his descendants. You see, we're to seek good, God's good. Not our good, not what we want, but God's good. We're we're to look for the welfare of those that, that know him and those that might come to know him and be his descendants. You see, We've got to know how to do that. And it's hard to know how to navigate those relationships, how to, how to keep what we're to keep and to give what we're supposed to give and insiders and outsiders, believers and non-believers. But if we'll walk with God, if we'll put on the armor of God, if, if we'll be near the people of God who have a heart to do this, who are, who are putting up the defenses that we need so that we can honor him, we'll know better how to do that. You see, they were still slaves. They were still in a mess. And yet they're still trying to seek the good and speak for the welfare in the midst of the mess they're in. You know, who are your descendants? Who do you seek the good of and speak the welfare? Who do you trace your lineage to? See, we need to trace it back to Jesus. That I want to seek the good of my king and seek the welfare of my king, Jesus, and his people. You see, we need to die to the old way of life and be reborn. We need to be adopted like Esther was. We need to be adopted into a new family and then surrender ourselves for the glory of God, that if we perish, we perish for such a time as this. You see, sorrow is good because sorrow and godly sorrow will lead us to the throne of God, falling at our faces, crying out to him and him telling us how much he loves us and cares for us and wants us to rejoice in him. And rejoicing is good because in the midst of rejoicing, we, were, we, we are reminded of the brokenness of others. 
and the rejoicing that we have in him. You see, regardless of what happens, the story of our God is he turns sorrow into rejoicing and asks us to take the rejoicing and, and be sorrowful for those who don't have that joy. And maybe, maybe we don't know how that works, but God does. So let me ask you this morning, is your life defined like Esther, like Mordecai, with a statement of, well, if it pleases the king? Do you have such a heart to want to, to walk with God, to, to be under him, that you know his word, that you're seeking to understand his word, that you're not just obeying blindly, but you're getting wise counsel that And then are you looking to take care of others? See, that's what our God asks. He asks us to be people that are surrendered to him. And isn't this picture of submission so beautiful? You have a king and Esther who submitted to king and Mordecai who submitted to, told Esther to submit to the king, who's also submitted to the king. And isn't it amazing how now Mordecai is the second in command? Some people say this should be called the book of Mordecai, not the book of Esther. Because in the end, it's Mordecai who's, who's second only to the king. Like, that would, that's amazing that God would elevate Mordecai to that. But isn't it awesome to know that when we're faithful, there's a God who says, I see that. And I'm grateful for how, you, how you've saved others, how, you, how you've stood up, how you've defended my glory. See, that's what we get to do. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you this morning that you are the king. I pray that we would, as we go through this time, ask if it pleases the king, would we have wise counsel around us? Lord, would you help us to take our sorrow and turn it into rejoicing? And would you help us to be willing to surrender our rejoicing to weep with others? And then to show them, to show them that in a relationship with you, when we surrender our lives to you, that there's rejoicing in heaven forever. That in the midst of sorrow, it doesn't undo us, but there's something greater something glorious, a relationship that we long for that can't be filled anywhere else but in you. And Lord, even this morning, would there be some people who just cry out to you? Would they be sorrowful over their sin but rejoice in your forgiveness? Would they rejoice in your glory and be sorrowful over those that are gonna stand before you one day and have nothing to show but their filthy rags of works that aren't gonna stand? Father, help us to be your people, we pray. Help us to put on your armor, we pray. Amen. Listen, if you need help this week, reach out to us. All the information's on the website. Text us, call us. If you've got people that you're looking to serve, uh, man, let us know. Please communicate. Right now, we're at a place where we don't gather together. We're going to try to have a Zoom call um, on Sunday morning for us to gather and just to see one another as a body of believers. But it's, it's hard, and we don't know how to do this necessarily. And so pick up the phone, make a text. Don't think, oh, I don't want to bother them. Like, bother us. We want to serve one another. We want to encourage one another. We want to get you prepared to be ready to stand firm and, and know how to please the king. And, and so, man, if we can be of help, please please reach out. Hey, we, we love you guys. Um, God loves you. He desires for you to know him. Would we be people who who turn sorrow into rejoicing and are willing to surrender our rejoicing in the midst of other people's sorrow. And may it please our King. 